Roe has agree. a very um, dry and dark sense of humor. So just so you know, and that, he's that the one I that do. needs therapy the most in this probably, group. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's so. probably true. Yeah, I. Can I? Uh, so uh, um, I, I don't. I don't know how. So I guess, man, my brain's all over the place. Um, First of all, I'm back home because uh, my grandma recently passed away, so I'm doing my best to like, well, we're going to be silly goose time. It's going to be great. It should be fun. But the joke, <laughs> the reason I brought that up is because uh, I, was in, <laughs> I was in line getting on the plane today, and there was a lady who had, it was a full flight. There was a lady who had a, um, a box that I'd never seen before. It was like a UPS box, but it had uh, cremated remains uh, written on it. And I was like, oh, dang, that's crazy I, like, i've never saw that in like a ups package or whatever and uh they, t- they talked about how it was a full flight and blah blah blah, this and that and all i could think in my head was like does that person have to pay for a ticket or, <laughs> <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> are they good <laughs> what's the policy oh on that so, <laughs> so, so yeah um that's Did you, how like, I process. Get your, like, do the light and say, like, I have a question. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> bing, bing. This bing, is bing. really, really bugging, man. I need to know. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to the Health Unfiltered podcast. My name is Ro, and I'm joined by the gang per usual. Say hello, Nicole and Brooke. Hello. What's what up? up? What up? And we also have a very, very <laughs> special guest, Dr. Brent Ruby, here with us today. Today, How are you doing, uh, Dr. Ruby? <laughs> it's awesome. Awesome to be here. Hey, I'm doing you, well. You are uh, where right now? You said Montana, right? I always get Montana, Wyoming confused yeah. for some reason. Oh, oh good God. lord! <laughs> I uh, know <laughs> they're right next to each other. Okay. But, uh, no, I'm on the far. I'm on the far west end of Montana, about a hundred miles from the Panhandle of Idaho. Oh man! So we're on the very far western slope uh, of the Western Rockies. There, sounds, one state below Canada. Sounds like a dreamland, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> like, how do I get myself out there, just away from people? Like that would be that would be ideal. Yeah. Oh man! Well, well, the only reason I'm here is because this—the only reason I'm in Missoula is because that's the only place I got a job when I finished <laughs> grad school, and then I never left. Yeah, let's say that was a long, long time ago. We'll definitely get into that. Uh, so, as, as uh, Dr. Ruby's kind of hinted at, um, he's the director for the Montana Center for Work Physiology and Exercise Metabolism at the University of Montana. Um, where their goal is to provide medical professionals and ground force combatants with effective strategies to maintain safety and performance during extended operations in hostile environments. Um, And when I read that, all I heard was like, yeah, he does really cool things with really cool people and um, everyone else should step step up their game (laughs) because I feel like I'm a nobody when I read your stuff. So (laughs) it's it's really good for my mental health. Uh, (laughs) So this is going to be a a nice episode. So, um, yeah, well, like I said, thank you uh, for coming uh, on on this podcast. If you're not familiar with it, um, what we do now is kind of do our virtual cheers and talk about what we're drinking. Um, So if you are drinking anything, we can extend it out to you um, to describe what it is that you are drinking. 
Well, it is like barely past one o'clock. I know. <laughs> so and that means it feels like the Super Bowl or something if I've cracked a beer at one o'clock. But so because of that, I've I've selected a session IPA that's a nice hazy. So the alcohol content is low enough so that I can keep my wits about me during this whole podcast. <laughs> but it provides enough lubricant to probably get at some of the answers you're hoping for. Awesome. <laughs> like, how do you really feel about this? What about, what about you, Nicole? What are you drinking today? I am drinking a good old kombucha because, <laughs> like like you said, we're just not used to being um, potting so early during a work Nonsense. day, week, <laughs> like a weekday. Nonsense. So... Um, <laughs> I really like the uh, Brew Doctor Kombucha, and I'm drinking the Clear Mind, which is rosemary, mint, sage, and green tea, and it's really good. Whoa. Fancy. It does sound good. Yeah, it does. It's my favorite one. I'm probably Thank the you, most Brooke. boring. I have a good old fashioned water, water oh because goodness. I am <laughs> because I have a workout Log planned off. after this, so I gotta you know fuel and hydrate for my workout. Don't judge me, coach. I, well, I'm over here like, hey, uh, Dr. Ruby, we talk about like what we're drinking, and you're like, water. I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> I sold him on this, and he's like, sweet, I'm drinking. Everyone else has water. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, as your coach, I guess I can appreciate that. Thank you for putting your health and workout first. Um, I myself, you. it is, it is uh, like Brooke said, it's kind of weird, or like Nicole said, it's 2 p.m. here, but I did crack a Victoria, which is a beer made in Mexico that um, I try to have every time I'm home because my, my dad has them. Um, but it's just like a, I don't even know how you would explain it. It's just like a solid Mexican beer, a um, little darker than a Corona, but it's one of my favorites when I'm home. So cheers to you all. <laughs> Love it. Cheers. And I'll probably bomb like four of these. No big deal. So. <laughs> Rose on vacation right. mode. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's summertime. School's it's out time forever. To decompress. So. No, no. <laughs> All of the above. So uh, we do have a question of the week. Uh, and this is, uh, I saw a commercial where you breathe into a device and it tells you whether you're burning more fats or carbohydrates. Uh, what's the point of these? Are they important? Should I invest in them? Have you seen any of these commercials? I feel like they've been popping up a lot lately. I don't really see commercials. I have seen, I... <laughs> I've seen them on a Facebook feed, and I probably had two of these, and <laughs> it prompted me to post some inappropriate comments. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Yeah, what are your thoughts yeah, on those? But Just... I have seen – I mean – I think it's like uh, there is no ceiling as far as what can be marketed. Oh, absolutely. Um, assuming assuming they can get a steady state, stable uh, breath sample and calculate RER when your VO2 is like 0.2 liters per minute. <laughs> right. And then translate out that to how it's going to affect your entire 24-hour physical activity existence, then, yeah, it might work. <laughs> But resting RER in my mind, resting RER in my mind is uh, is a limited basket. For sure. What about you, Brooke? As a dietitian, right? Like, you have a client. It's like, oh, I'm just trying to lose weight and get healthier. Like, I, I'm, and I'm using this thing. Like, it says I'm burning more fat. Should I be having more fats? Like, 
I feel like this is like a horrible thing <laughs> to have for clients. It is because it's sometimes when you have the like knockoff version, like you can buy a body comp tester off Amazon for 20 bucks kind of thing. It almost works against you. It's like, well, it's not really accurate data. It's not even necessarily reliable. And it just gets even more confusing to a client mm-hmm. or a consumer, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree with what you said, Dr. Dr. Ruby, where it's like there's so many assumptions that have to be met. And then also like we we generally think that if you're at rest you should be burning primarily fats anyway so but that doesn't mean that you should just be like i can only eat fats now like there's there's so much gray area that people don't understand that yeah i feel like it, they'll be like i can only have sticks of butter for the rest of my life so uh yeah don't invest in those things don't buy don't buy them people uh, <laughs> Uh, unless we get sponsored by them, then I'll be like, oh, we got to start pushing these things. Right? <laughs> you know, OK, Can't be a so sellout, row. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. that's all I want to be is a corporate <laughs> sellout. You know, we build this thing up. We sell it. I'm not a part of it anymore. Easy. Um, but, you know, we'll <laughs> we'll see what happens in the future. Uh, anyway, in this episode, um, we're talking to uh, Dr. Ruby about his journey through science and academia, uh, how he's a self-described wrench and what that means. And uh, we get to delve or we're, I'm hoping to delve into how far the human body can really go. Um, so, Dr. Ruby, uh, tell us about yourself. You know, what is it that you do? How did you get to where you are and what keeps you in <laughs> Missoula? Because apparently you haven't left since you got there. So, <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> well, I I started uh, my academic journey, I suppose, like so many people in this field. I just sort of wound myself up as a runner in high school and thought, well, I want to do something that involves exercise and the default at that time. And I think to this day, the default is still, well, I'll I'll become a physical therapist (laughs) because that's what everybody wants to do. Still, yeah. And um, so I, I went to Colorado State University for my first year. I grew up in Colorado and I grew up a runner. And um, so I went to Colorado State and ran there one year. They didn't have physical therapy, but they had occupational therapy, and that had half of the name in it. And so I I selected that as a major and quickly realized that it was not the same thing and that I wouldn't like it. (laughs) And so I ended up transferring. uh, I transferred after that year to a small school in Seattle called Seattle Pacific University. And I had had some friends that went there. And... Of course, I switched my degree option back to pre-physical therapy. And then I think in a semester or a quarter, we were on quarters, I switched it back to, or I switched it to pre-med. And then I uh, got talked into taking an exercise physiology undergrad course as a sophomore. And it just like opened everything up for me in like the, the, the syllabus. The syllabus opened up for me and the way that the professor wrote on the, it was, well, they didn't have slides back there. There was really no computer much um, overheads, but the way that he wrote on the board and the way he put down his graphs and it just, all of a sudden my running life uh, sort of unfolded in sort of a scientific expression of (laughs) just awesome heavy metal guitar or something and it it was like i don't know how i don't know 
what that means, but I have to follow this path. And I remember practically the day. I still have uh, that undergrad textbook. <clears throat> and that was in 1986. Long time. And so I did what all good I did what all good academics do. When I graduated, I went straight to graduate school. <laughs> and then when I got down there, my my mission was simple. I got married along the way. So Joe and I got married in '89 uh, and moved to Albuquerque, New Mexico, where I went to graduate school. And the only reason I went to Albuquerque is because they accepted me, <laughs> and they ended up getting a, a an RA or a TA position there. And it was just like it just kept falling into place. These little yeah. things kept falling into place, which was great. And I was there for maybe, I don't know, part of the first semester. And I remember going home to our tiny little apartment and telling Joe, I really think I want to stay here. Hmm. Like I want to go the distance. I want to, I want to get my, I want to finish here. And she's like, what the heck does that mean? I don't like <laughs> working where I'm working and I'm like come on sugar mama just give me five years <laughs> and so that's that's what that. she provided and it was she 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 really paved the way for that and was understanding for the most part at least patient um yeah so I I really enjoyed my time there and then when I was about done there it was right when the internet was kind of opening up, I guess, for business. And so I didn't have an email or anything. I applied for all my jobs via uh, old school mail. Got all and, snail um, <clears throat> it was crazy. Yeah. And I remember getting an interview at Montana and, and then coming up here and thought, oh, this is this would be awesome. Would it be easy? No way. <laughs> But I would have to figure out how to start something from scratch. And I remember calling calling Joe from the airport uh, on my way home from the interview. And I thought, I think I might get this job. I really might get this job. And Joe's like, good, because we need to get like our shit together and get our family started. Dude. <laughs> <laughs> Sick of waiting. And we, we that was five years. I was at, out in Albuquerque for five years, I guess. And then... That was maybe on a Saturday when I came home and or a Friday or something like that. Monday, I was in Johnson Center in the lab and the main lab phone number rang and it was the dean that said, hey, we want to offer you the position. And before he could finish that sentence, I said, I'll take it. <laughs> and that was that. Didn't negotiate, didn't, didn't waver, accepted the job and then called Joe at her job, which was at the Gap, and she was the store manager at the Gap uh, there, and uh, I said, "I guess what we're moving to Missoula," <laughs> and that was that. Simple. It was. I think of I think of search committees nowadays. I've been on so many search committees yeah. and so many <coughs> negotiations for positions, and it was like, why is it so complicated? Just say yes or no. Yeah. And so I was. Yeah, I, I think about that all the time. And then, I, I mean, I've been here ever since. I came here in 1994, so I just finished my 26th year here. My very wow. first email was my University of Montana email. And <laughs> it's been the same. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, I think about how, um, 
because I am also at UNM, right? And Dr. Mermier talks about you all the time. And I'm like, that's that's so crazy to think about someone who's been there for so long. And now, you know, you're over there for so long. And, you know, how long until your students go somewhere and they're like, oh, yeah, Dr. Ruby's still over there. And it's like, he's been there for 40 years. <laughs> like, that's crazy. <laughs> I do. I will say that when it, when it is time for me to say it's time, it will be time. Yeah. And I will not. I will not. I have too many other things that I enjoy and love in life. I still love all the academic stuff. I love it to death. And it's provided me with a lifestyle for me and my family that's been unmatched, I think. I don't have anything to compare it to, but the <laughs> flexibility and the awesome, just it's been amazing. And I, I'm really, really very thankful that I had the path that I had. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Uh, it wasn't I, always easy. It certainly wasn't always easy. <laughs> I met you, oh my God, I guess it was four or five years ago. Is that um, uh, a conference that Dr. Smith had put on at Mississippi State, uh, who I love, love John Eric. He <clears throat> talks very well about you as well. But I remember you were talking and I was like, this dude has a hat on. He has a, like a frilly cowboy vest on. He's got jeans and boots on. I'm like, who is he? And you started talking about your research, and I was like, uh, "No, there's people like this don't exist." <laughs> research, this guy, none of it makes any sense to me. Um, and and I can't wait to talk about like you know your life and the research you do because so much of it is just like outside of the box of like science that I've put myself into, and like we kind of have to as academics. Um, but I think that you know when people listen and while, while I listen I'll be like yeah that's right like humans aren't things we can just put into boxes that's just like how our brains work to mm -hmm. categorize things so I'm really looking forward to hearing about um, all that stuff and if at any point we start talking about stuff and you're like actually I just want to talk about this you run for it man I will will be behind you just I have questions <laughs> I have questions okay. so, <laughs> so feel free to to grip it and rip it for well sure. I'll, I'll I'll say one thing to square things up. It was definitely not a frilly Western. <laughs> it might have been a vest, but it did not have fringe on it. It was very uh, just a classic vest, man. <laughs> All right. I'm so glad you maybe, cleared that up for us. Maybe, maybe my, I do, my I, memory was a bit different. <laughs> I, I do have an elaborate hat collection of sorts but and i can't stop saying no to those but i will admit to that <laughs> i love it yes <laughs> fight 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 for yourself for sure uh i will just continue to dog <laughs> on you so um so yeah you've been uh you've been a part of academia and research for it seems like forever um can you tell us about what your research consists of and what makes it so different from kind of anyone else's like what is it why did, why is it special to you <clears throat> well, let's see. I guess it's my my research mission, of course, started when I was a graduate student at New Mexico. I didn't have any research experience as an undergrad um, because I was too busy running. And <clears throat> then when I I hit my senior year and I'm like, wow, I really, really love this. And I was just like trying to suck up as much as I could. And I read a few papers because that's back then you'd have to actually go to the library and copy them 
out of the journals and collect them all and roll them around on a wheelbarrow to get them to the copy machine. There was no PDFs or nothing like that where you just like, boom, you've got it. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and I remember reading a few papers on um, sex comparisons and how the female reproductive hormone, especially estradiol, uh, might subtly alter um, substrate utilization during exercise. And mm -hmm. I thought, that's so cool because a hormone like that has such a highly specialized series of functions. And yet it has time to maybe alter skeletal muscle metabolism. That's fascinating to me. And I don't know why I glommed onto that, but I did. <clears throat> and I think I did because I, I glommed onto some of the methodologies that were used in some of the papers with just muscle sampling and some of the ways that they were extending indirect calorimetry as a measurement tool. Uh, and I just, I just loved it. And so when I got to New Mexico, I just thought, yeah, I'll just get a degree and go back to Seattle and work in cardiac rehab or whatever. <laughs> and then when I, I took a research methods course <clears throat> and uh, I think it was a research methods course. I can't remember what it was that first semester. Anyways, I, it, it really got me thinking about research and then a new faculty member showed up and I got to be on that search committee. And that new faculty member really jump-started quite a bit of research um, opportunities. And I just loved it. I loved working well beyond the normal time frame. I, I loved getting done with my coursework and then going right back to spreadsheets and looking at some of the associations between the data. And I just loved it. <clears throat> and I had a wonderful colleague uh, who was a doctoral student at the time. And uh, he was hell-bent on rebuilding the uh, hypobaric chamber there. Uh, yeah, so he and I were, he and I were kind of uh, instrumental in getting uh, that redone and revamped and rebuilt. But I, I just, I think <clears throat> early on I, I had a passion for it. And that's kind of, it's never really faded. It's changed. And it certainly has become a, a sharper tool. <clears throat> but... <clears throat> I just had the early motivation, I think. And then when I came here to Montana, all the rules changed because all the stuff that I was used to working with and all the infrastructure that I was used to having, like at New Mexico, and I did my uh, dissertation research through the <coughs> Clinical Research Center <coughs> across campus. And it was just incredible. The resources were incredible. And then I get to Montana and I go into the lab and I'm like, well, at least we have a metabolic cart from the 80s, <laughs> which I know how to work on because I worked on the same one in, as an undergrad. So I knew how to take it apart and rebuild it and whatever. But and and we had um, we had a temperature sensor system with three dirty rectal probes. And that was that was my lab that was my lab inventory for the most part, uh, and we had a couple of really great. crappy treadmills and a Monarch ergometer that I think uh, Per Olaf Olstrand built from scratch in Sweden <laughs> in the 1940s or something. <clears throat> Basically, we had nothing. Yeah. And so I thought, well, okay. <clears throat> and at that time, faculty were required to teach 18 credits a year. Oh, Jesus. And so I was brand new out of graduate school, 
moved to Montana, had 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 some teaching experience, but had to start everything from scratch. And so the summer before we moved here, I wrote my lab manual from scratch uh, with, I don't know, 14 different basic exercise physiology, 200 level lab experiences, um, and then hit the ground running and thought, how in the world am I going to get a research agenda going uh, with teaching this much? It was incredible. I did have a wonderful retired colleague who was a past president of ACSM. His name is Brian Sharkey. And Brian was instrumental in some early Forest Service work back in the 60s. And he was just a Missoula hippie, just loved (laughs) Missoula and loved working for the Forest Service and was bent on getting me to do that. And I I was kind of bent on developing some stable isotope methodologies um, at the university. And I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to be able to pull all this stuff off, but I got a little, some internal money here or there. But then Brian, we decided to uh, go to the ACSM meeting. I don't know, somewhere in the Midwest, but Brian's brilliant idea was let's take the train because it's cheaper. It's not really cheaper. And it takes like, three days or two days to get out there. But we took the train. We took the train to ACSM. And on the train ride back, we plotted and planned. uh, We saw a new investigator award posting for an Army grant program. And uh, we we plotted out some study directions, and I applied for that grant, which was I would work all day, and I would go home, and I would eat, and then I would go back to the lab. And I would work into the late hours on that grant proposal, uh, trying to get it refined. <clears throat> and then I got the reviewer comments back, and they were scathing. They were scathing. They were Classic. like, you are – no way. This is not a thing. You can't oh do gosh. this. You, how is it possible that you're going to try to do this stable isotope study in the lab, and then you're going to try to take some of that same methodology – and you're going to go out and run around with firefighters in the forest. Mm-hmm. That That's not a thing, dude. Like that doesn't work. And, but the good thing was it's an, a new investigator award and it wasn't that much money. Um, it seemed like a lot of money to me at the time, but those awards are sort of set up to be like, ah, if it, if it fails, it fails. Big deal. It's not that much money. And yeah. so they took a chance on it um, and it kicked ass. We kicked ass on those project series. Um, and I was so absolutely thrilled with the idea that reviewers said, no way in hell can you do this. And we just hit it right out of the park. Um, and I just had such awesome graduate students at the time that were just like, so excited to be involved. I had an amazing colleague uh, who's still an amazing colleague who was at the University of Chicago at the time. He's since moved to Wisconsin. He's since retired. (laughs) But his name is Dale Scholler. And Dale was instrumental in developing the doubly labeled water methodology for humans. And, And that brilliant scientists took the time to listen to me one afternoon 
and talk him into working with me. And it changed my life. It changed my science. It changed my attitude. It changed my motivation. And it changed, I think, most importantly, my confidence. Um, and I think of him all the time when I talk to young scientists. And I think, how can I try to do little, how can I find little moments of, of my time to do that for young scientists that were in that same position. Uh, I can't say thanks enough to him. And then I, uh, to other people, Bob Wolf from Texas at the time and Andy Coggin from Texas at the time and Galveston. <clears throat> I mean, just, just the fact that they like the idea enough to care enough to take the time to help me was just magic for me. Um, and I, that was instrumental. I mean, I, and I wasn't, I was like, I felt like I said, thank you. I say thank you to this day, but I wasn't going to go, I wasn't going to go beyond that. They said, thanks. Let's get going. Let's get this done. Let's get working on this. This is awesome. And so once I had a taste of kind of juggling the world of internal validity and external validity, working in the lab versus working in the field, I was uh, totally addicted. I could not, I, I felt like every proposal since then, no matter who reviews it and hammers it, I always feel the need to build in laboratory-based study directions and field-based uh, directions as well. And I've gotten into arguments with reviewers. I've gotten arguments with other scientists. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, we've been able to get, I would say, very good funding for several years to do just that, to sort of challenge that paradigm. And so that's that's been kind of my mission. I don't I don't mean to cause waves, but if if waves get caused, I'm not going to apologize them, but I'm going to surf the shit out of them <laughs> along the way. So, yeah. Brent the Wrench Ruby, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that you um, that you talked about how you need internal and external validity. Uh, because as, uh, you know, personally, I know I went into to research because I was like, well, I want to bridge the gap between strength and conditioning and science because coaches mm -hmm. think scientists are eggheads. Uh, scientists think coaches are meatheads, right? But it's like... No, they're both right. They're also both wrong. So how can we do that? Yeah. Uh, so much about what we talk about here on the podcast as coaches, because they're nu nutritional scientists, right? RDs are like, this is what's good in practice. And then nutritional scientists are like, nope, like it has to be this. Um, and so it's it's totally different. Uh, but, you know, that that's, that's one of those things where science informs so much of what we think in our practice but like life doesn't fit into a box, right? Like life isn't science where we can control a bunch of stuff. Um, and I think that that's kind of where there's a lot of, um, I won't say animosity, maybe mistrust when it comes to science. Uh, not only in like, you know, we're in a weird time with a lot of other things, but specifically to like food and health and everything. Um, do you think that we should be listening less to science, less to anecdote? Do you think it's equal you know, like, what are your thoughts on that, especially being someone who does play in both in both fields, right? It's, you know, what are your thoughts on, on that? 
Well, unfortunately, the access to information means there's unequal access to good information and bad information. Right. Back when I started as a young scientist, the only way to find science was to go to the med library on the University of Washington campus or in Albuquerque on the on the or that be the north end north of campus, campus. I guess. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And spend hours at a time finding the science, combing over it slowly, painstakingly, using not a computer to find it, but a giant what looked like a Bible, the Index Medicus, that was like this thick, and you would flip to keywords, and I would always start with exercise. And then I'd go down, look at the titles. Nope, no. Nope. Oh, this is a good one. Highlight that. Write it down. Go find the journal. Nope, that doesn't apply. But, like, I, I became much more of a, a sort of a, a discerning consumer of it. Whereas now... It drives me insane when I hear people say, oh, I read this article. I heard this article on this exercise uh, regimen, or I heard this article about this new drug, or I heard this article about altitude training. I'm like, that's not an article, dude. That is a blog post right. or a, an, a, a magazine article. Maybe if it's written in Outside Magazine or Runner's World, it's written well, but that's not the original source. Mm -hmm. And so... <clears throat> That's that's what I think as scientists we need to try to be better at. We need to be a big, strong, original voice, but then we can't let it just linger that way. If we do, somebody else is going to pick it up and they're going to run with it, and we're not going to like the direction that they run with it in. So I think we need to science beyond the manuscript. We need to science beyond our own grant applications, and we need to help uh, translate some of that science, maybe not to the world as a whole, but definitely to the people that we want to reach. I mean, when, when wildland firefighters think of science, I want them to think about our science because mm -hmm. I want to put that in front of them in a way that uh, makes them understand it. And I know that data better than anybody else does and, in terms of my own. We all know, I mean, I know my own research better right. than anybody else does. Uh, and so it's a, an easier translation. Scientists do a crappy job of talking even to other scientists. So why would Absolutely. we why would be why would we be expected to talk well to the lay population? It doesn't work that way. And I I, I remember as a grad student, I would take every opportunity that would come up. Oh, we need somebody to go talk to this uh, retirement community about the benefits of exercise. I'll do it. We need somebody to go talk to this. Uh, aerobics class about whatever i'll do it <clears throat> i just loved it i love the challenge of being able to uh explain things to different people different audiences so yeah i think some of that also has to do with the fact that like you said as scientists you are um trying to pump out research or you love your data so much that you're combing through it and you only have so many hours in the day right and then also you get so used to writing for a specific journal or writing so that a reviewer doesn't just shit all over your stuff that it is really hard to like <coughs> switch gears and it's unnatural for some people because I mean 
I love my friends, right? And some of them are like some hardcore scientists, but they're weird people too. I'm like, oh, you can't have a basic conversation. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so it's it's hard for me to to also be like, yeah, I expect you to be able to that maybe like dumb that down or make it more normalized. Like nobody understands what like hypoxia is, and then to really delve deep into like what's happening at the cellular level, like very few people really understand that. So. And those yeah. people talk to someone else who's like, okay, I kind of get it. They talk to someone else. Yeah. Someone else writes about it. And then you kind of get like the telephone game of information where it's like, I heard mm-hmm. the thing. And it's like, no, that was not what I said. Um, so yeah, I, yeah. I like what you said about how you, you understand your your research more than anyone else. And the people who need it should be looking out for your stuff or they should be like asking yeah. you so that you can be like, no, yes. Maybe. And it depends. Always. Yeah. It's kind of <laughs> the, the, the favorite there. answer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. exactly. I, I really I say yes to almost every time I'm asked to give a talk somewhere, especially if it has anything to do with fire. And most of the time I love just going and, and talking to crews. I did a talk with a crew in Northern California yesterday, albeit on Zoom, which is not as fun. But um, I, I really enjoy talking to those crews. Um, and I, I really like the concept of that. I don't, I don't feel like I'm, uh, dumbing down the data so that they understand it. I feel like I'm providing them with the tools that help them lift themselves up to understand it better. Mm -hmm. So that might make, I mean, some of this stuff is somewhat complicated, but it's not hard to explain it to them so they do understand it and have an appreciation from the for the complexity of it. People, I think, just anticipate that all science is relatively easy to do, and it's it's it takes an unbelievable amount of time and patience to see it through at the right pace. Um, but yeah, it's I think scientists should struggle enormously every time they design a study with balancing the internal versus the external validity uh if they don't then there there's probably an agenda that's getting pushed forward and that's unfortunate Mm. so yeah and and that's a perfect segue because i know that uh missoula or at least the where you're at um is pretty famous for a trailer that allows you to do the the uh internal and external validity can you talk about about that and what kind of doors that that opens up because that's like the sickest thing i've ever heard of so (laughs) well back when we we started mapping out another aggressive field type study with an awesome team of, of of researchers here one was a postdoc who's now at nebraska omaha dustin slivka awesome dude. And then two of them were my uh, graduate students at at the time and then finished and then came on full time as research associates. And they've been amazing every step of the way. Uh, They're exceptional writers and they just have a good mindset to bounce things around and they're patient with the way my brain works, I think, (laughs) or at least they fake it. (laughs) But uh, we, we were planning a series of studies just like that, some lab-based work and a lot of really aggressive, unique field stuff. 
Um, and one of the studies we were planning was uh, some more firework, but on those with with the firefighters, our goal was to do some more energy expenditure measures with some tracers, but also to, to collect some different types of samples. So we did a, uh, a, a nutrient delivery study with the Army to evaluate a new ration system. We were planning to take muscle tissue samples before and after a work shift in firefighters. And at the time we thought, man, we really need something better than a tent to, to do this in. We need a, a more mobile setup. And so the grant that we had from the Air Force, initially we decided we wanted to get um, what's called, well, in the, in the world of fire, it's called a crew buggy, but you might see them around in the West. They're the, the standard green forest service, but they're big old international harvester uh, truck body with a big box on the back that holds about 10 firefighters. And so we were gonna get one of those and modify it. <clears throat> And then something happened in my wife's brain that allowed her to let me buy a 1964 Airstream trailer on eBay. I don't know what it was that allowed her to do that. Maybe I was just persistent, but I bought it and got it home or had it shipped out and I'm in the throes of tearing it all apart and thought to myself, we should get one of these for the lab. This would be a lot more versatile. So I called Airstream and tried to convince them to make a custom one or at least modify it, no was the answer. <laughs> and I'm like, wait a minute, you, you guys made fancy ones for the astronauts when they came back on the Apollo missions. Why, why, why should we be any different? <laughs> They're like, yeah, no, sorry. So, <laughs> we, 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 so. We, we, we bought, a, we bought a, a new Airstream back in 2007, I guess, and kind of retrofitted a little bit, but... Um, that really opened up a lot of cool opportunities because we could work, we could drive that to where we were going. We could work out of that. We had a clean space, we had sterile space, so we could prep, prep samples. We could um, collect samples. We could sleep in there. We could do whatever. It was, it was fantastic. So we've taken that all over the West on fires and other studies. Um, and I've, I've, I've called Airstream to simply just to tell them that, hey, just to get, let you guys know, I think I have two world records in an Airstream trailer that I don't know if you care about, but I, I think I have the, the, the single day record and the, the most number of biopsies ever collected in an Airstream trailer. I have both of those world records. So they did not care about that. So, but that that mobile system really uh, enabled us has enabled us to do a lot of a lot of cool stuff. And we we bought another one a few years later and had it retrofitted with solar and everything. It's a it's a much smaller one. We don't take that out as much, but we have both of those that we can roll around to different situations depending on the on the fire or the setting and it's been really cool yeah i mean like the the fact that you know there's a, a woodland fire going on and you're like all right let's load it up and <laughs> we gotta head mm -hmm. out there to test people um yeah and then you also have i mean i was, I was looking at studies where there was prolonged work for 21 days um ultra marathon runners and blood markers and like so it's 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 crazy to think about how you are collecting data during these events right they're, they're at a rest so you take blood or something 
Um, what kind of special findings do you do you find during those studies? Like, why? Like, obviously, we know that you know talking about how life doesn't fit into the boxes of science. Like, that there are certain things that we cannot get in the lab and we make assumptions for. But like, what yeah. are the things that you can actually find doing these studies, and how does that differ from only lab measurements? That's a great question. Um, now, the the unfortunate limitation of a lot of these studies is at least initially they have to start off as descriptive studies Mm -hmm. so there's there's it's it's very difficult to build an 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 independent variable into the study design that you're able to successfully manipulate Uh, because it's like external validity heavy internal validity very light um, and so that was one argument with some of the early army funded studies with fire. They're like, well, this is a descriptive study. And I'm like, yeah, it is a descriptive study. The reason we need to do it is because we do not know what we're up against. Like at first, we need to know what we're up against. What are the energy demands of this job? We can't collect expired gas samples any time during a real fire. <laughs> and so that's when we deployed the the tracers to do that but at the time we had no clue on like how's this going to work is it going to work how often do we need to get samples so we collected way more than we needed to fortunately it was only urine samples at the time but timing is of the essence and it's very expensive to deploy a a single dose at that time it was like a thousand dollars per subject and uh, that seemed like an enormous amount at the time to try to like risk. And so we were like hiking in to get samples from crews onto the actual fire line. We were taking helicopters to fly in to meet the crew at remote locations so we could get measures of body weight. That's crazy. Nude. Nude (laughs) measures of body weight in the forest and urine. (laughs) So the the greatest part about the greatest part about working with the fire community is it seemed like the more novel the data collection effort, the more excited they were <laughs> to be involved with it. I think it just gave them another story to oh, yeah. share with friends, family, potential loved ones, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> they, were, they were cool stories. And I, I, it was just a blast getting into their world of work and being like, yeah, we're on a helicopter, man. Why are you on a helicopter? Are you guys going to go fight the fire? No, we're going to go collect some urine samples. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> and I still have pictures up in my office of uh, being out on that fire with those with that team and pipetting the urine samples into the tubes that we needed to store them in and getting them in the ice and everything. And it's dark and cold. And yeah, so but I, I think we, we started those projects and they are descriptive studies by nature. Mm-hmm. But it helped us uncover what the overall energy demands of the job are and also what the water budget is. And so most of the time in the world of exercise science, everyone thinks, oh, my God, if there's one thing we cannot let these athletes do, we cannot let them get dehydrated. (laughs) All Brooke. everything's gonna go to hell if they if they team water if they <laughs> if they, if they if they succumb to moderate dehydration. 
And so that's why we wanted to, to calculate that water flux was to see what we were up against. Because these guys don't carry around graduated cylinders. They don't weigh themselves each day. They don't monitor their urine regularly. Not that that is that valid anyways. But um, they calibrate and they make decisions based on experience and what has worked for them in the past. And I would I always argue that their uh, their abilities and their calibration to make things right on their own self-selected schedule is probably more accurate than most of our instrumentation that we could deploy and study them with. <laughs> hmm. So to give you an example, the water flux is about seven and a half to 10 liters a day in 24 hours for a firefighter on the line. Wow. This is a hot shot. So the top end, high end special ops, uh, badass on the ground. Um, seven and a half to 10 liters a day. In five days, we measured the total water flux to be about 35 liters um, for this, this population. We also did a measure of total body water before and after that five-day window, along with a measure of nude weight. They lost one kilogram in nude body weight. Their total body water was down one liter in five days. So in order mm. to be perfect, they would have had to consume 35 liters. They consumed 34. Oh, wow. That's pretty freaking good in over a five-day window. Yeah. So hydration in that pot, that, that allowed us to learn that hydration is an issue, but they deal with that issue very well. We don't need to continually tell them, um, it's hot out there, guys. Make sure you drink enough. They know that. And we don't need to remind them. It's kind of insulting to remind them. And so um, we've we've used that and we use the energy demands as sort of our foundation. And from that, then we've layered on top of that unique strategies with some experimental designs to learn how supplemental feeding enhances their safety and their performance while they're doing stuff. And I got a question yesterday by one of the, this is the hotshot crew in Northern California. They're like, well, what are the go-to like sports supplement products, bars, whatever, whatever that we need to have on the line? And I'm like, there is no magic bullet. I cannot give you a magic bullet. The only thing I can give you definitively is I can give you um, a semi-magic uh, eating schedule. Hmm. So if it's a normal day, I just want you to have something every 90 minutes. If it's a harder than normal morning, have something every 60 minutes. If it's even more aggressive, back that down to 45 minutes. Increasing the number of eating episodes that they have on their really aggressive work shifts matters way more than if they have the magic bullet bar uh, that is promoted to do this, that, and the other for muscle glycogen or whatnot. <laughs> so it, keeping the message simple uh, to them with practical solutions, not telling them, okay, I've got this formula, bear with me, you're going to need to convert your body weight to kilograms, <laughs> and then I'm going to have to have you start counting grams, because I want you to get a certain number of grams per kilogram, and then they're like, yeah, no. Yeah. So uh, you just have to reach reach the audience that you're, um, that you're targeting, so... Yeah, I think, uh, especially as as the dietitians, like, 
I, I mean, Brooke, Brooke and Nicole can talk m- more about like, you know, how there's a reason they don't do meal plans and it's like about lifestyle, like fitting it into your mm-hmm. life. I, for that reason, it's like, hey, I want to be able to perform on on the on the front line a little better. And like Brooke's gonna be like, all right, it's gotta be six meals. It's gotta be at this time. Like, <laughs> yeah, Brooke, I think that's how you run your business, right? Like everything is specific to time, no changes, nothing. <laughs> well, what's interesting is all the firefighters I work with. We take a very similar approach to what you're describing. It's just not realistic for them to have these like perfectly portioned and measured to the gram meals. It just doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. So we take a much more intuitive approach to how they, you know, really take charge with the performance nutrition side. And it works mm-hmm. so much better. And they're so much happier yeah. because they have enough to stress out about. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy. Right? And I when I when I talk to people or when people uh, ask me questions about the teams of firefighters that we work with it's there's i think there's a general misconception that all firefighters ride around on a big red truck with a dalmatian at their side <laughs> and these guys don't fit that bill uh they're out in the sticks for 14 days at a time uh their trucks are green their shirts are yellow uh, I, I love doing research for the team in the yellow and green and that's that's the wildland folks and their energy demands are 4000 to 6000 plus kcals per day um and that's hard to do that's hard to eat that much when you're camping um so they they don't always have that uh have that high end but for the most part the hot shots really do um but they've been really just a blast to work with and we've used that same methodology the tracers to follow shorter events that are much higher energy demand type tasks so we've used it at ironman um in hawaii <clears throat> that ironman in a 12-hour window is about a 9,9500 k event that's measured that's not estimated with algorithms or anything that's measured with these with these tracers and the resulting CO2 production that comes from that calculation. Um, the crazier events on the planet are like the Western States 100, which is the granddaddy of the ultramarathon world in Northern California. And it's a hundred mile race uh, through the mountains of Northern California and the Sierras. And the energy demands of that are about 14 to 19,000 kcals in 24 hours. Okay. So those are are the highest energy expenditures measured in humans. Granted, they are relatively short events. I mean, they're 24-hour events. They're not like the tour, which lasts 20 days or 21 days. And the the technique has been used in the tour. uh, And those guys throw down six to 8,000 kcals per day, um, which is pretty impressive when you have to do that every day. but they get paid pretty well, so. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Dang. I, I don't know. It's like, it's so so much of it is just that, like, I feel like a real baby when I'm like, oh, man, I'm, like, tired. <laughs> like, I've done, like, nothing today, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and they're like, oh, I expended 19,000 calories. I'm like, cool, never mind. Yeah. <laughs> and the, <laughs> do it the greatest part, the greatest part about the study we did at, um, so we combined the data 
from Ironman and Western States and then the Badwater Ultramarathon, which is through Death Valley. We combined all those figures into one paper. And the, the message, it's just a descriptive study. It's here's how these, these huge human numbers, that's all the paper is. It's not like going to change the world in terms of some novel experimental design, but just describing that humans can do that. And it, I think in the, in the world of uh, ultramarathons, most people think, oh, marathons and ultramarathons are set aside for those special people that have unique capabilities that no one else on the planet has. And that is not true. That's the, that was the main message of that paper is that those uh, physiological uh, capabilities, they're at all of our fingertips. Every human has those capabilities, whether they tap into them, not as a whole complicated uh, mess of all the other things that right. make us tick. But those physiological uh, tendencies and ceilings are reachable by average individuals. And I think that's the thing I like so much about that paper is like we weren't studying the winners. We're studying the average people that just finish it. Mm -hmm. And they have some pretty freaking incredible physiology. And, uh, yeah, I, I just, I just love that. I don't know. Maybe it's the sort of this ancient human poetry that gets told as a result of doing something like that. I loved the book born to run, but I loved some of the, I, I love some of the archeology span papers way more than that book. <laughs> that describe the patterns of early humans as runners and whatnot. And it's like, if an early human tried to throw down those numbers, they would be dead in 12 hours <laughs> yeah. because they, they would not, they would not have unlimited access to fluids mm -hmm. and foods to support such a, a unique scenario. Whereas the modern ultra events are highly supported and they're just these rolling buffets of nonstop, <laughs> gels and drinks and ugh. yeah <laughs> but it, it helps us get them done yeah so yeah that's what i say I, I make all my ancestors um what's the opposite of proud uh <laughs> they're all looking at me like wow you're so comfortable <laughs> oh, <brother. laughs> i'm like yeah. i didn't move much my back hurts today and they're like cool we <laughs> ran <laughs> hundreds of miles to kill a boar and i'm like yeah sorry uh, <laughs> life is so much better now oh man um, yeah. yeah i i i know it's like uh so so with with all that information right like we, you've been able to push the body or not maybe push the body but seeing the body at it's like almost at its limits right like i think that we still don't fully understand only because in order to push that far right you teeter on the edge of like death so <laughs> irb would never mm -hmm. pass any of that stuff but you know you you know so much and have seen so much and you know like th that's why you're able to be like well you know you talked about dehydration right well we can actually be dehydrated for a while we kind of do this blah 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 what are some like thing other things you like to throw a wrench into in regards to like uh how they're affected by extreme environments or being pushed to capacity so you know the the big thing before was the metabolic window where it has to be in you know between 
uh, zero and 30 minutes in order to get like full protein. And if you, and we know that that's not real anymore, but like stuff like that is in like everyday humans, right? Us recreational athletes or whatever. But how does something like that, or maybe something else that you were like very into change depending on an extreme environment? Oh man, you're setting me up. Um, <laughs> Everyone's gonna fight so you. Is what I'm saying. <laughs> we 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 did a project uh, with a grad student who went on uh, and worked with the U.S. Uh, snowboarding team as a uh, as a strength and conditioning guy. Awesome dude, Mike awesome. Naparowski. Uh, great guy. And we said, Mike, we want to do this study. Um, where we look at muscle glycogen recovery after exercise. So we basically deplete the muscle and then we refeed them. Like so many studies have done, there's enormous amounts of refeeding studies out there. Some of those refeeding studies focus on glycogen as a like restoring glycogen and then providing information on timing and dose uh, in terms of uh, making sure an athlete readies themselves as soon as possible for the next day's training or the next day's mission or even some event in the afternoon that same day. And so I thought, wow, these are such great studies. I mean, they were great studies, awesome studies from Texas Austin with John Ivey and, and uh, studies at Ball State with Dave Costell and studies um, with, yeah, just loads of awesome early research. And I love all those studies. And I thought, you know, the problem with these studies is they all happen in the same laboratory air-conditioned environment. Yeah. And I thought, what if we change the environment? What if we have them recover not in the air-conditioned side of the lab? Let's have them recover in the chamber. But let's do two trials. So one trial, they get fed exactly the same way. We take everything out of the muscle just the same, like with a 90-minute interval depletion ride. We're famously good at robbing cyclists of all their fuel, just ripping it out of their legs and then laying them down and taking samples. So we designed this environmental stress uh, refeeding study in a repeated measure sort of scenario. So very much a, a controlled high internal validity um, situation where uh, their diet was controlled. Everything is controlled because it's a classic lab study. Well, the recovery in the heat showed that the muscle glycogen restoration was severely impaired compared to recovery under an air-conditioned normal lab setting. And that environment is far more like what an athlete's going to do in the real world. If they're in an occupational situation or a training situation, they might not have the luxury of getting into an air-conditioned environment. Yeah, And so it made such a difference that the, between the two trials that it was, oh my gosh, we don't have to worry about dialing in the grams per kilogram perfectly. We got to dial in the environment. The environment is more important than what they eat. Interesting. Because they're going to self-select enough and get full as long as the, the training table is, is not just like all mayonnaise and French fries <laughs> or whatever, but heavy cream, right? Brooke? They're yeah. going to, they're going to be able to self-select and do a fine job if we can get them in that environment. So then we got, we thought, Oh my gosh, this is, 
this is a great project. It was a really fun study. And so then we're like, well, what about cold? Well, what about altitude? Mm-hmm. And so we start playing with these different, different environmental conditions. Um, and then we went one step further because it seemed like we weren't getting a lot of mention in some of the classic sport nutrition recovery stuff because the environment was less interesting than, than calibrating the grams per kilogram precisely. And so that's when I really got fed up with it and said, you know what? I'm sick of this. I'm sick of people telling athletes that they have to eat this product at this time. Here's the weight. Here I've got a, I prepared a gram scale for you in a graduated cylinder. I've got it all mapped out for you in a lovely spreadsheet. All you got to do is do it. I'm like, nope. We're going to do two things. We're going to provide classic sport nutrition products, and we're going to stack them up next to menu items from McDonald's that have exactly the same macronutrient profile. And so we did a muscle glycogen recovery study with fast food menu items from McDonald's. And, oh, my gosh, (laughs) I got – I felt – if you felt like – I presented at ACSM – um, and it felt, uh, it was difficult at times to take some of the questions. And I'm like, you guys aren't, people were saying you're advocating for McDonald's. And I'm like, no, I'm not. Yeah. And they're yeah. like, well, why didn't you, why didn't you use healthier options like rice or bagels or whatever? And I'm like, if we were to go to the good food store or the great harvest or whatever, and purchase these optimized foods, uh, we wouldn't even be having this conversation. Yeah. That's not the message. The message is if McDonald's food items work, guess what? Anything's going to work. <laughs> and so we can, we can simplify. We can, we all of a sudden we we're in a situation where we're not dumbing down the science. We're lifting up and we're empowering the end user to understand it and providing them with a much more sustainable message and saying regular food is the same kind of powerful fuel that all this marketing hyped stuff provides. I mean, I remember when power bars first came out, I was racing in Seattle at the time. And it's like, this is insane. I've never had anything like this. And then after you have a hundred of them, you're like, this is insane. I hope I never freaking have to eat another one of these again. They're definitely not and, good. Yeah, but <laughs> I, you, they're they're brilliant because they last a long time and you, they're bomb proof and they're convenient and all that good stuff. Um, but yeah, so that that's probably one classic example of where really um, I, I've I made a few enemies along the way <laughs> with that project, and I I. That paper doesn't get cited in some of the, some of the. If somebody writes a review on muscle glycogen recovery, that's probably not going to get cited, even though it's a in a it's in International Journal of Sport Nutrition. Um, whatever. <laughs> if I was a review, if I, if, and I probably wouldn't get asked <laughs> to be a reviewer for that paper either. But okay, I have done reviews where I've said, hey, you know, you need to think about the environment. You need to think about these other projects, but. I mean, we've done a lot of muscle glycogen recovery studies, so to to leave that out of a comprehensive review is is 
doesn't tell the full story. Yeah. 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 So now you're uh, Brent, the McDonald's wrench, Ruby, in my head. Uh, (laughs) I, you know, I I had, I had an amazing conversation with uh, a scientist from McDonald's Corporation after that. In fact, she met me in San Diego at ACSM. And we had an absolutely awesome conversation um, about how they have to be really careful about how they design or redesign their menu because if they decide to offer a burger with fresh tomatoes on it, it could it could topple the world market of t- for tomatoes because of the volumes that they deal in. Wow. And so I, it gave me a new appreciation for what how they do things. I mean, yeah, there's issues with it, but we did. I, I did build a spreadsheet. I was pretty pleased with, and then my computer got my car got stolen and my computer got stolen i lost the spreadsheet but um someone's out there with a lot of information (laughs) they it i i built a i built a a spreadsheet with some macros in it that uh automatically well it didn't automatically it was kind of painstaking to build it but it had different food item combinations from mcdonald's and certain food items were automatically disqualified if they had too high of this or that but it, it it was built mainly the idea was to build it for like high school coaches. So when they roll into a McDonald's, which they're going to, they can at least provide some information to their athletes. Like, you know, don't get three big Macs. It would be better if you did this and combined it with this and this. And, uh, it, yeah, it was, it was fun to do that, but that's cool. Nothing, nothing came of it. Yeah. Brooke and I are consistently arguing about, you know, a calorie being a calorie and, you know, uh, candy being the same as an apple and whatnot but i think it's just that it's like it's a tier system right like there's tier a Mm -hmm. which is like optimal and then tier b and then tier c and c is like yeah you're mcdonald's where it's gonna work and you know if it's at hand great but like you said yeah it's only only that was only to be studied and evaluated in the acute moment it was never meant to suggest Oh, athletes can sustain themselves on McDonald's. That's not the intention. And if if people interpreted that, then they didn't read the paper, right? Um, but was well, that game yeah. of telephone, right, where somebody read it and said, yeah. "Oh, yeah. you can eat McDonald's all the time." And it's like, well, yeah, I don't know. But also, Johnny Manziel won the national champ, or I don't think he, I don't remember. Uh, and he just had Mountain Dew and hot Cheetos, so. <laughs> You know, you can be pretty good at the things you want to be good at, yeah. even on some pretty crappy stuff. Um, I, I know that you you already talked about like that. That's a huge difference. Um, and actually, I'm backtracking real quick. You talked about like glycogen depletion and there's a paper that came out recently. I guess it's May already. I don't remember when. Um, but it talked about how maybe we should be thinking about glycogen depletion differently in the form of weightlifting because... Now we're able to look a little deeper in the depletion that happens between different fiber types. And so it's like, Mm -hmm. you know, stuff like stuff like that. I don't want to say fundamentally changes how we think about like uh, intra workout nutrition. But when you think about the powerlifters who are like eating uh, Sour Patch Kids the entire time they're lifting and it's like, okay, that's overkill. Like, well, now maybe there's a little bit more merit to it right because it's like yeah yeah, the type 2 fibers when you are doing high intensity work in the form of like uh or at least relating to near maximal loads maybe 
right? I don't think it's a whole bag of Sour Patch Kids every time you work out, but so much right. of it is like when when we look at past science, it's like, no, if you weight lift, it doesn't matter. Like you're going to have more more than enough glycogen stores, but it's like, well, maybe, you know, with type two fibers, if you're in this specific, you know, level, you should probably be doing that. Mm-hmm. So uh, I love that you mentioned that like, just in that context, like things have changed, right? And that's yeah. because of this different science. But what are some some other like major differences that you've seen over the years? Um, maybe based on your research, maybe not, but like that you used to believe was like, hey, this is this is it, this is the way. And then after doing all the research you've done, you're like, oh man, I used to I used to talk out of my ass back then, only because I didn't know, you know? Because I have yep. plenty of those thoughts, and I'm and I'm a young researcher i'm a young academic you know but there's already yeah. so many things where i'm like i was so wrong about that and that i think i when i have those moments i just smile at myself and i smile at the science and i think there it goes again <laughs> yeah. that science that fickle bitch she's <laughs> yep. always sneaking up on me and and pinching me gotcha gotcha <laughs> and i'm like ah you tricked me again and those are those are awesome moments because they um, they show us that we need to be we need to strive to be unbiased. At the same time, we need to have a fire in our gut that that makes us be- want to believe one direction is more feasible than the other mm-hmm. because that helps us that helps us develop our our theories and our hypotheses and our ultimately our study designs for the longest time in the world of fire because of all the other collective research a lot of it in resistance training and protein synthesis and the fed state of an individual i was convinced that firefighters over the season were going to have compromised uh muscle mass and muscle health and so I'm like, we just need to figure out a way to study that. And so we did a project in Alaska with a a group of firefighters, hotshots. And yet, instead of just uh, simple measures of body composition, we used DEXA scans. And we also used whole body MRIs. Oh, wow. So with the the DEXA scan, of course, we could break down the fat mass and the fat-free mass. and, And that was powerful. But with the MRI, we could do two things that was really compelling. We could uh, look at the circumference of the quadriceps at a certain point, and we could go in and pixelate and circle all the muscles that were uh, that made up the cross-sectional view of the of the quadriceps, and then quantify it for cross-sectional area down to the pixel. Crazy. And we noticed that over the course of the season, the firefighters got fatter. And their, their uh, cross-sectional area of that quadriceps in the exact same location, no change, no compromised muscle health whatsoever. But we could also use that MRI to look deep into the liver, and we could look at li- hepatic uh, liver uh, supply or stores, and the fat in the liver changed for the bad. That paralleled their changes in blood lipids, which is uh, not good. And you think, how in the world does somebody expend four to 6,000 calories a day and get fatter <laughs> yeah. as a result of the season? 
And and our just like that shotgun, boom, blast that theory out of the water. The fire season is going to compromise skeletal muscle health. Nope, it actually makes people fatter in some situations, and that's not good. That's not that's not good at all. And so we're we're playing with that paradox. But we thought, and this is with this awesome colleague in Alaska. His name is uh, Robert Coker, Trey Coker. He's top-notch protein synthesis, protein metabolism guy. Uh, we got reconnected after meeting many years ago and started working on some of these projects together. And we were racking our brain thinking, man, what we need, we need a model that just shreds somebody's ability to stay in energy balance. We need a massive negative energy balance issue, but is that's matched with hard work. Because the, the, the firefighters don't have negative energy balance, mm -hmm. generally. And so we're thinking about it, thinking about it. And he's like, oh, I got it. I think what we could do is let's use uh, hunters in Alaska. They fly in with very limited supply. If they shoot something, that's a lot of work to deal with, managing that harvest. And those hunters, their uh, ethical responsibilities with that harvest is top notch nothing is going to be wasted mm -hmm. and that is a heavy piece of meat and bone to drag around miles and miles and miles out of the alaskan backcountry and so this is trey and i talking over beer or whatever saying we should do this backcountry hunting study yeah how will we do that that seems expensive and he's like well i have the mri we have the dexa um, what if we, we could get the tracer to do the energy expenditure? Uh, we could scrape together enough money to do that. So we, 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 we've done a couple of those backcountry hunting studies and it's just insane. The negative energy balance is almost a thousand kcals or more a day. And over 12 days, there's zero compromise to the skeletal muscle mass, zero. And so they, and they are not taking in calories to optimize timing and resynthesis they're not they're not able to they don't have enough and the only thing that's absolutely incredible is they are in massive negative energy balance the skeletal muscle is zero no worse for wear at the end of that 12-day window they may lose eight to ten pounds in the process but the blood profile and the hepatic lipid plummets like it's the world's greatest hmm. hunter-gatherer sponsored uh dietary program and exercise program imaginable and again that's just a descriptive study but man it was it was just so and the energy expenditure is four to five thousand calories a day kind of like the fire model but just another really cool example of how you have this one theory, you can't be in negative energy yeah. balance if you want to maintain muscle mass. And it's like, nope, sorry, you can. In that situation, you can. Yeah. Which, and athletes that are in this constant uh, quest to build, 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 they don't, want to, they don't want to create that negative energy balance because they're fearful it's going to compromise the muscle health. But, yeah. Yeah, I feel like a general takeaway for that then would be like, build muscle, have muscle, and then like, just stress yourself, use it, you know? And yeah, that, that's yeah. like you said, our, our bodies are so crazy and are able to hang on to the things that 
it needs. And I think a lot of us, and especially myself, because when I when I say that, I'm like, oh, yeah, like it doesn't make sense to have muscle because it's like highly metabolic, right? So we're going to like get rid of it in these high stress situations. But at the same time, like you need that in order to husk around that 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 boar that you shot or, or something. So as long as as you are doing things, right, your body's going to be smart enough to be like, okay, like I, I still need that, um, which is so crazy and awesome to think about um i i guess my my last question before before we go is like where do you think that like human research has to go you know what, what's the biggest frontier we have to conquer now because not not that we have all the answer we're not even close right we don't a lot of our stuff is based on theory still uh because it's a young field but from what you've seen like where do you think things are headed and like what do you think is probably like the most important thing uh to study in your mind at least well i think that the the sort of the exercise health paradigm uh and physical activity for the promotion of longevity health and functional capacity will never go away mm-hmm. um i i think it's it's hard for me to envision uh the the world getting more sedentary than it already is. But it is fascinating to have basically grown up as a scientist through uh, the the timing of no computers to every day we have computers and other excuses to, to stay relatively sedentary. So we're continually trying to build these synthetic situations to, to substitute for real tasks that maybe 20 years ago were second nature and like reconnecting with some of those simpler types of activity, like getting out into the mountains for a hike or whatever it's exercise need not be only about, nor should be only about expending energy. It should be about connecting it should be about reinvesting it should be about i mean just go for a hike in the woods with somebody and i guarantee you the conversation is going to be awesome Mm -hmm. you're not going to be able to have that conversation on a park bench it's different (laughs) but i and i i think when the as i've gotten older i've i don't think so much about finished times and interval times and things like that i just think about doing right getting it done getting out there and doing it and i have these two uh dogs these two border collies and both of them i bought without my wife's permission <laughs> and so it cre- it created a quite a quite a shitstorm for a bit but those guys i mean they're like they they're like, yeah, we, we really don't care about your schedule, dad. Mm-hmm. We, we need their sheep on the mountain and damn it today, we're going to find them for you. <laughs> and so let's go, let's go get them. Let's do it. And so they're like automatically built in, they're like built in fitness programs. And I ski with them all the time and I hike with them all the time. And it's, it's great. But like all those things, all those simple things are, are, are wonderful tools. I don't know how that fits into your question, but like, I think that, I think getting people figuring out ways 
to not so much continue to tell people, here's another study that tells you exercise is good. Here's another study that tells you if you eat this, that's not good. Here's another study that tells you if you eat this and do this exercise, it's good. It's like what we really need to figure out is how to get people to do it. Mm-hmm. That is, and that's that's different than uh, than a, uh, a physiology directed uh, scientific investigation. That is very different, and that takes a lot of artistry and uh, some amazing social science. Oh, yeah. uh, practices that I think have eluded us big time. We all know exercise is good. We just haven't figured out how to get people to do it regularly. Yeah. But I, I, I think about like my career as it kind of uh, starts its slow fade. I don't know what that'll be, 10, 15 years, whatever. <laughs> but what are the what are the things that it's going to take me, the distance? Um, I really enjoy the environmental stuff. And I really enjoy, I've, I've started to enjoy some of the biometrics and some of the wearables. I think that's going to be uh, something that's never going to go away and hopefully will start getting better and better. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's impressive. I mean, I've, I've grown up my whole research world and watched that whole market uh, grow and change. Most of it's been absolute garbage. <laughs> But occasionally there's those little shining moments where it's like, oh, my gosh, this actually is doing cool stuff. Um, And so I think that's that's a cool area uh, as well. But I I think researchers need to figure out strategies to raise the money to do the studies that they want to do. We've been really fortunate to I, I I I know it's mostly because of our persistent work with the fire community because the fire community is the closest thing we can create to combat and not be combat. Um, and we're not fake. It's not simulated. It's a real thing. I mean, I've, we've had, yeah, I've known, known firefighters that have, have, have died on fires. Um, and I've, I've been to, I've been to set uh, settings where firefighters have died and I've done studies on mountains where firefighters have died. And so it's, it's a real deal. And I, I don't take that for granted. I am happy every day. I've been able to work with that community. Wow. Wow. What a way to cap the episode. You know, that's, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you so much. Like always, we love all our guests, but thank you so much for coming on, like hearing about, you're right. Like your 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 story of not having the internet to now the internet's here and there's a lot of information and how <laughs> research has changed and like how your philosophy and stuff has changed is is really enlightening and it's it's great because for, for personally for me like you know as a scientist I'm like wow yeah I'm excited to see what happens 10 20 30 years from now and then like mm-hmm. us as practitioners too to be like I wonder how we're going to like inform our clients you know differently in five ten fifteen years depending on how things come out so um it's it's really really great and and informative uh where can people find you and and what else are you up to um coming up maybe um probably easiest way is just google me find me on montana's (laughs) website find me on montana's website email me anytime um, I started a website because when working with the fire community, I knew that um, 
the research is one side of it, but I was, mm-hmm. it felt like I was missing something and like family members of firefighters and young children of firefighters, they don't care about water turnover and they don't care about energy expenditure. They care about if their mom or dad, when they're going to come home or when their grandpa is going to tell them another story. And so, um, thanks to those little dogs of mine, I, I wrote a children's book, um, based on the years and years of fire experience that I've captured. And it's called Rango and Banjo on the fire line. And the, I got a lot of crap from my science friends. Like why, why in the world would you do something like that? I'm like, dude, if I think of something in order to stop thinking about it, I, I have to do it. Do it. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm, and I'm like, I remembered a long time in my career. I'm not going to apologize for the things I don't understand and the things I don't know. I'm going to celebrate the things that I'm good at and the things that I want to try. And if they don't work, they don't work, but at least they gave it a go. And so that's why I wrote that children's book because talking to firefighters and as firefighters age, they have a desire to be with a person and they have a desire to have a family. And that's really hard with that profession. And so their stories are the the stress of the job gets displaced by the stress of being away. And I thought, well, I need to write a children's book to speak to the families so that those children know what their folks are up against or their grandparents done. And it just bridges this communication gap between somebody that's been gone for 14 days and now is back for two. And you, you put a little kid on your lap and you read him a story and you tell him a fire story, things change for the better, I think. Right. Having read to my kids, I mean, my kids have read and read and read with me growing up. But, um, yeah, so that's why I did it. And I'm not, I'm super proud of it. And it's been really well received by the fire community. And so that's that's one of the unusual new things I'm up up to. Um, and then, yeah, just more, more environmental studies, some more, uh, studies in the field, I think, but yeah. Awesome. Yeah. You know, no shortage of things, uh, on your list of things to do. (laughs) So again, thank you for, for coming on. It was, it's great. Uh, we'll link up your, I guess, Google search, uh, um, on the show notes as Mm -hmm. well as a link to your book. If anyone's interested in it, um, Row and uh, Row, that's me. Uh, Nicole and I are currently <laughs> still accepting clients. Uh, I do all <laughs> things related to exercise and performance. Um, Nicole is our intuitive eating and health at every size dietitian. Um, and then Brooke is a dietitian specializing in athletic performance and body recomp. And you can join the wait list to work with her for one on one nutrition coaching. They're both killing it. Keep it, uh, keep it going. It's great to watch you all work. Um, Follow us at Health Unfiltered Pod on IG uh, and keep those awesome questions coming. Uh, we like to read them. We like to ask them. And sometimes we make fun of them off air, but it's great. Uh, rate us, share <laughs> us, leave crowd. a review. <laughs> I know, right? Rate us, share <laughs> us, leave a review wherever you get your podcast. Um, as uh, Brooke likes to say, only nice comments. Uh, I'm all about mean comments as well. It doesn't really matter. Um, 
<laughs> let us know what you're thinking. Uh, keep sharing it. Uh, keep leaving us stuff. Like I said, we love it. Um, and give us ideas on what it is you'd like for us to talk about. If you want to bring um, even more cool people on, people on than Dr. Ruby, if you can find them, uh, love to have them on as well. Um, but with that, we'll have uh, Brooke do her thing and lead us out. Cue that music. <laughs> Peace out, everyone. <laughs> Bye, everybody.